0: Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free.
1: Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more.
0: Feeling lost?
1: Then you're in the right place.
0: I'm Amanda Knox.
1: And I'm Christopher Robinson.
0: And this
1: is is Labyrinths.
0: Labyrinths. That was Maya Shunker playing La Campanella by Paganini. She was 13 years old at the time.
1: I don't think I was that talented at anything by age 13.
2: Violin was the centerpiece of my childhood. So I, from the time I was six, I was absolutely infatuated by the instrument and was hoping to become a a professional. So when I was nine, I started studying at the Juilliard School of Music in New York and then... When I was a teenager, Itzhak Perlman asked me to be his private violin student. And for me, that was an incredible vote of confidence because when you're in these kinds of really competitive settings, you naturally feel profound imposter syndrome. And so when my violin idol, and arguably the best violinist in the world, said, You might have what it takes, then I felt like, Okay, I'm going to double down on this and actually try to go pro. It's hard to overstate just how much a part of my identity the violin was. I mean, to this day, if you look at my body, my right shoulder is slightly elevated compared to my left because of all the years that I spent playing the violin and my spine is slightly curved. You know, my body literally grew around the ergonomics of the instruments. The violin felt like an extension of my body.
1: But that would all change one fateful day when Maya was 15 years old. I remember
2: this moment very well. It was early in the morning. I was an impatient teenager who did not do her warm-ups as she should. So I I overstretched my finger on a single note and I heard a popping sound and I, I knew something was wrong, but I just tried to ignore the pain. And for those who are listening, who are like, you injured yourself playing the violin, I'm a testament to the fact that classical musicians are also extreme sport players. As much as Maya can joke now, that small pop in her finger was no laughing matter. Eventually, I kind of just had to surrender because the doctors were telling me, sorry, kid, your career's over, certainly as, as an elite player. And then it got very complicated fast when they were like, actually, you have to stop playing entirely.
0: I can imagine how if you start out becoming a precocious professional violinist at such a young age, you might just sort of take that
2: identity for granted. You're completely right. As kids, unless you're extremely precocious, you don't ask yourself questions like, what is my identity? Does this thing define me or not? Until you lose the thing, which is exactly what happened in my case. And then I fell prey to what's known in cognitive science as identity foreclosure, which refers to the idea that we can become very fixed, especially in adolescence, in a very specific identity. And then that can prevent us from exploring other paths. And because I never examined my identity and the violin just happened to me, I hadn't had the cognitive wherewithal to know that, hey, maybe I should diversify my interests. It just clung on to me and I clung on to it. So when I lost the ability to play, I had a bit of an identity crisis. I didn't know who I was without the violin. I just remember asking myself as a teenager all these existential questions like, who am I? What is my purpose on this planet? What do I do?
1: It was around then that Maya stumbled into something that would shape her life for years to come.
2: If you had asked me as a kid, Maya, do you dream of being a cognitive scientist? I would have said no, primarily because I didn't even know that was a thing. And then I discovered an old course book from my sister. It was a book that she had read in college and it was in a, in my parents' basement by Steven Pinker and it was called The Language Instinct and it basically mapped out our incredible ability to understand and produce language. When the author pulled the curtain back, and reveal the incredibly complex cognitive machinery that's operating in order to give rise to this ability. I just felt in awe of this organ, our minds, right? And you start thinking, how could I have taken this for granted? Because you think about the fact that you guys have this beautiful, adorable young baby, but as she grows older, you're not going to sit her down for grammar class every morning, like, hey, let me teach you what a gerund is.
1: Well, we might, <laughs> but, but we're, we're outliers. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> Instead, Eureka is going to take in a stream of auditory information in the form of you speaking, and there's nothing that demarcates one word from the next, right? And then she might hear multiple languages and effortlessly pick those up. And so, of course, it's remarkable that we have this ability. And, and again, it was just only in reading this book that I really appreciated what's behind this. And then that led me to ask all sorts of other questions like, well, what's behind really complex decision-making? What's behind all the heuristics that we use, the shortcuts that we use in everyday life just to like get around in this world in a way that doesn't completely overwhelm us? So I just became fascinated by language acquisition. And then when I got to college and discovered that there was a cognitive science program, which was actually pretty rare at the time. So I was taking classes in philosophy, neuroscience, psychology, linguistics, computer science, biology. And basically you ask a fundamental question about the mind, but then you're approaching it from this multidisciplinary perspective. I lit up with all these big questions like, How do we perceive objects? I studied visual perception and I worked with non-human primates and humans alike and was just allowed to ask all these fascinating questions about how our minds work.
1: It sounds like that was your path out of feeling lost in the wake of this injury. How long was that period from the moment you injured your finger until you realized you had a new passion and something to devote yourself to?
2: That's a great question, Chris the feeling of being lost persisted for years. I think I developed those same feelings of insecurity around cognitive science. I have no idea if I can translate this into something that fills me with the same kind of joy and curiosity that playing the violin did. And so I think it took me many years, and it was probably when I started getting to conduct original research in labs, like ask my own questions. And I think that was when I realized, oh, this is really fun. And I find myself thinking about this topic in my free time, which is often a really good sign that you love something. Once I lost the violin, I realized it was much more sturdy for me to attach my identity not to specific things, but instead to the features of that thing that brought me joy and that filled me with passion. And so when it came to the violin, ultimately what I realized is that it was human connection that drove me. I love the idea that I could forge this deep emotional connection with my audience, oftentimes a room full of strangers within moments and could potentially make them feel something they never felt before. And realizing, ah, okay, that's what makes me tick. I love understanding what it is that gives rise to human connection. I love understanding what it is that motivates people and what makes them tick and how they bond with one another. And so that was the intentionality that I brought to the cognitive science piece, which is, oh, this is a vehicle for me to explore this underlying passion I have, which is human emotional states and connection and what drives us. And so even though I have worked in public policy in the Obama White House and worked at the UN, and now I have this podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, there is this through line, which is a desire to forge this kind of emotional bond with other people that has persisted. And I don't know if either of you have found that when you've departed from one thing, which is, oh, there's this underlying trait that I really enjoy.
1: You know, actually, I I was thinking about my own early trajectory in relation to yours. I was a computer nerd kid growing up, spent a lot of time in my basement room, building my own computers and playing around on the early internet. And it just seemed inevitable that I was gonna be a programmer. And after a couple of years, I burned out because something wasn't resonating for me. I think what I realized is that I thought that that world was going to offer me opportunities to exercise my creative muscles in a way that it didn't. I spent a lot of time doing rote work, programming. There's definitely creativity to it, but it takes a long time to see any measurable result. And maybe I just wanted more immediate fulfillment. You can write a line of a poem and it can be beautiful and it can be a terrible poem, but that one line is still good. Whereas if the program doesn't compile, you have nothing.
0: <laughs> Your case was one of more of an internal existential crisis where you thought you were committing to something and it was the wrong thing to commit to. I was thinking of this after watching a community episode where they were talking about commitment. (laughs) I think Jeff Winger was saying something along the lines of commitment is scary because we're afraid that we might be committing to the wrong thing.
1: You know what? One of the first serious girlfriends I had, the thing that broke that relationship in my mind was this notion of like, well, I wouldn't just buy the first car that I ever test drove, you know, I would shop around. And <laughs> it seems kind of heartless, but it's—it's. It's, I think it's really true. You need to have some measure of what's out there in order to know if your decision is a good one.
0: I'm interested to know this actually from what your research, Maya. Why is Chris, at that moment in his life, someone who has the exploratory mindset, that curiosity, that sense of like detachment from his identity with the thing that he is studying or pursuing. And why does someone like you, who uh, had a career at nine years old, what's the difference there? Why do some people sort of latch on to identities and other people are more uh, playing the field, as it were? <laughs> 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 and in both of our cases, Our decision to change wasn't really our choice, right? Your finger stopped working and I was put in prison. And so like that idea that who we are is, first of all, not really even totally within our control because there are these external circumstances that regardless of what your intentions are, they will impose restrictions on you and force you down
2: new paths. So first of all, I appreciate that you're trying to draw parallels between your experience and my experience. Obviously, they are of profoundly different consequence. In my case, a very small thing like the violin. In your case, freedom. I think it's a question of agency. So there's the The willed, desired change, which is what you're seeing in Chris, right? So he is realizing computer science is not for me. I'm going to explore this other space. The girl's not for me. I need to explore girl (laughs) (laughs) 3.0. And then there's the unwilled, forced upon change, right? So something that mirrors your experience, Amanda. We can assume in the face of an unwilled change that there's going to be exclusively negative outcomes. Like, I, comma Amanda, am going to walk through this mirror, I'm going to become a prisoner, and you don't appreciate, for example, all the ways in which you will grow, you will become a more empathetic person, it would lead you on a mission to help those out there who are wrongfully incarcerated, it would give you this huge purpose in life, right? And then in the face of a will change, we're like, oh, of course this is going to be great, but I've had many people come on my show saying... I inspired this change, but I did not appreciate that this change in one part of my life was going to change who I was in many undesirable ways at times. We are fundamentally such bad cognitive forecasters. We don't do a good job predicting how future things will affect our mental state. We also can fall prey to a fallacy, which is we assume that when one thing in our life changes, every other part of ourselves will remain fixed. My advice to people going through any kind of change is to essentially audit themselves during their change experience to observe in this very sensitive way all the ways in which we might be changing inside or outside of our conscious awareness.
1: I just have one more question about the violin, which is, was sadness a big part of your experience of losing that? And. Did that persist? Does any thread of sadness still persist for you when you think about the violin and the world of the violin?
2: Absolutely. I definitely feel sadness. I can hear other instruments in performance with some ease, like a clarinet concerto. But my heart aches when I hear a violin performance, especially when they're playing any piece that I felt an emotional connection to. I feel nostalgic, lusting after the experience that I had. Actually, just last night, my three nieces were over there quite young, and my brother and his wife were like, hey, do you want to hear Auntie Maya play the violin? So we pulled up all these old recordings from childhood. And I'm watching myself, and it's very bizarre. It's almost like I'm watching a different person altogether. But you could just see that I was entering these flow states. I don't know, I'd probably romanticize it. But I definitely feel sadness. I definitely have some pause when it comes to buying a concert ticket, even for my favorite musicians. And I think there's an acceptance there that there'll always be a twinge of sadness. And then you try to channel whatever else you can into gratitude. And in my case, there's a profound gift in childhood of being handed something that you fall in love with that fills you with a singular kind of focus that I think is otherwise hard to find when you're a kid and you're distracted by lots of different things. I feel gratitude that I knew what that felt like so I can at least strive to find it in in other parts of my adult life.
1: We could tell you all the great reasons you should support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener?
2: Hi, my name is Allie, and I joined Labyrinth Patreon because there's nowhere else that you can explore the ebbs and the flows of humanity with the kind of truth and grace that you can get with Labyrinths. There really isn't anywhere else you can get that.
0: Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.
2: I got my doctorate overseas, and then I did a postdoc in the States in cognitive neuroscience. I I was at Stanford at the time, and this was, again, one of those moments where I was like, finally got it figured out, folks. This is my new career trajectory actually, Chris, I think we had a very similar experience. So I remember I was in the basement of an fMRI laboratory. I was doing some very in the weeds research on olfactory perception and the effect of on decision making. And I was scanning brains for like five hours at this point in this dark windowless lab. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is not a good fit for me. I'm a really social person. I love working on teams. There's this person in the scanner Who's amygdala I'm looking at, and I don't know anything about him. And I just felt the order of operations was off. One of the joys of playing the violin is that you do get that immediate feedback, but there is an input-output model that is temporally constrained <laughs> on my like, basic research where you like put in a ton of work and then like maybe two years later you publish a paper. And I just knew I didn't have the right temperament for that sort of thing. So I ended up calling my undergrad advisor, I felt kind of sheepish about it because I was like, hey, so that thing that you've been helping to coach me through for like a decade, uh, I kind of don't want to do that thing anymore. And so I was wondering if I should become a general management consultant. And she's like, okay, uh, before you totally betray me and go to a totally different field, I'd love to tell you about some amazing work that's happening in the federal government. The idea of working in government at this point has not even crossed my mind, but I was told that they were using insights from my field, namely around the power of the default option.
0: Specifically when it came to the school lunch program, which offers reduced price or free meals to qualifying kids.
2: And basically what was happening is that the program was available to millions of families, but because there was a stigma associated with signing up for the program and because the form was extremely burdensome, Imagine a single mom who's working three shifts to make ends meet, and then we're asking her to fill out a form and reference multiple tax documents and get it to the post office on a certain day versus during working hours. That's not reasonable to ask. And so they said, we're changing the program design. If your kid is eligible, you are automatically enrolled in the program. And now parents only have to take an affirmative step if they want to actively unenroll their kids from the program. And as a result of this tweak, which is rooted in behavioral economics and which has been used to good effect in the space of retirement savings and organ donation and whatnot, 12.5 million more kids were now eating lunch at school every day. Hmm. And so that was a profoundly emotional example for me. And I realized I think I want to translate insights from my field into changes in public policy. Like that felt like. A wonderful way to get out of the dark windowless lab, but also use my skill set and expertise that I had been accumulating for years at this point. So I ended up sending a cold email to a former Obama advisor and was basically just like, hey, I'm Maya. You've never heard of my research and I've no public policy experience, but it would be awesome if you connected me with some folks in state or local government. I was too nervous, by the way, to ask for an actual White House job because I just felt like so above what I was capable of. And this guy, so generous, wrote back within moments and said, sure, I'm connecting you with President Obama's science advisor. Wow! And within a few days, I was interviewing with them and I pitched them on, on the idea of creating a novel position, namely one that worked at the intersection of behavioral science and public policy. When we're designing public policies, we've got program experts who understand how to make nutritious meals for kids. We have program administrators who understand, you know, what should be the eligibility criteria and what state should be involved. But we don't have behavioral scientists at the table making sure that we've identified behavioral barriers that could prevent kids from benefiting from the program, making sure that our best understanding of human behavior is reflected in the implementation of these programs. and the reason that i'm so fascinated by behavioral science and and cognitive science is that it reveals that there are some very surprising factors that can influence our judgments to give listeners an example of one of these hidden factors at play i think common sense teaches us like hey when you go into a voting booth you're going to end up voting for the person you'd most like to see elected into office right that's a pretty straightforward conclusion to draw but what research shows us is that the order in which the candidates' names appear on the ballot can exert a disproportionate impact on voter behavior, especially in low information environments. So obviously, if you're going in for a presidential election, um, you're probably going to know the primary candidates and, and this effect won't exert itself. But in lower voter information environments, the order in which the candidates' names appear has a profound impact on behavior. And in Texas, they found that when a candidate's name was listed first on the ballot, that candidate received a 10 percentage point boost in vote share relative to when they were listed last. This is a great example of how we are being nudged by an irrelevant factor. It should not matter the order in which these names appear, and yet it is exerting an influence. And so the policy design solution to this is, well, we should randomize the order in which the candidates' names appear across ballots, which is what a lot of states have done.
1: The power of behavioral science has also been helpful in fighting the opioid epidemic.
2: So we've talked right now about changing a program from an opt-in to an opt-out. Well, there's a lot of cases where there's a default setting, which is suboptimal. So let's take over prescriptions of opioids as being one potential problem. So, Chris, you've just had a major injury. You were working out too much. You dropped a dumbbell on something. And then you go to the doctor and you're like, I have such acute pain. Give me the prescription, right? hmm Now... A lot of times the doctor is going into some sort of electronic system where there's a a preset number of pills listed in the system, right? So it's like, okay, Chris has come in, there's a default number, 30 pills, and off you go. But what these researchers found is that when they changed the default number from 30 to 12 pills in the system, it decreased opioid prescriptions by 15% across the entire health system. And this is a a wonderful example of the power of behavioral economics because you're not denying any agency or freedom to the doctors, right? They can absolutely go into the system and change that 12 to 30 if they believe that you need 30 given the intensity of your injury. But what you are doing is inspiring a moment of cognitive reflection (laughs) where the doctors are thinking to themselves, what is really the minimum viable dose here, right? And so I think this is such a powerful example because again, it's a very subtle tweak in the system that can lead to profoundly positive consequences. Overcoming our cognitive biases is extremely
0: difficult, even when you know how to spot them. A key reason why is because our behaviors are deeply intertwined with our beliefs, and together they form our identities.
2: We all know that people can disagree strongly, even on empirical matters, like whether COVID is real, climate change is real, the impact of gun control regulation on deaths. And I think it's tempting for all of us to think that the antidote to this is to simply inundate people with more facts. But we know from our day-to-day lives that that just doesn't work. And the piece that's missing from that equation is we don't just form our beliefs from facts. We form our beliefs based on our group identities and the value that that group has. So there's this very classic study from the 1950s about sports team loyalty. And in this study, fans of opposing teams were shown footage of controversial referee calls from a football game. And even though these people were watching exactly the same footage, they arrived at very different conclusions about the referee calls. They tended to think calls were unfair towards their team, but not the opposing team. And I think what's so interesting about this example is that people aren't consciously thinking, like, oh, I'm biased. I can't view the situation objectively. They really believe their assessments, right? They're like, my visual system is not betraying me. And so, This just shows to me how large the impact of these group allegiances can be, which is it can actually shape your view of reality. So how do we try and solve for this? One is that we need to be really thoughtful about who it is that's conveying messages to people. We're far more receptive to evidence that challenges our existing views when it's coming from a member of our own community. And I saw this firsthand when I was working at the White House I was sent to Flint, Michigan to help on the lead and water crisis, and our task was to make sure that we were disseminating really accurate, easy to understand information about how Flint residents could keep their water clean and safe for them and their children. And prior to this huge fallout of public trust, folks might have thought, oh, well, we should have the Environmental Protection Agency issue out these mailers because, of course, they're like the pinnacle of credibility in the space. But you have to consider the context in which residents are receiving this information. They have just been lied to for decades. Their local government has told them that their water was safe and in turn they have poisoned their children. And now we're telling them, oh, you don't trust your local government, but no, no, please trust your federal government, right? What the local Environmental Protection Agency did is they mobilized a local canvassing effort in which trusted members of the community, so members of churches, heads of YMCAs, members of the Red Cross, they were the ones going door to door, knocking, saying, I vetted this information. I'm telling you as someone who sees you every single week at church that the information in this handout is accurate and I think that you should trust it. And that was a much more effective means of trying to get people to actually absorb new information. It is an exceedingly humbling space to work in cognitive science because you are so quickly confronted with the limits of not just our understanding of the mind, but just how rigid the mind is. This was evolutionarily a very adaptive trait. The fact that we have all these heuristics and shortcuts we use do allow us to navigate the world in a much more productive way because we do not feel overwhelmed by choices all the time. We do not feel like we have to take in every single piece of incoming sensory information and and assess it. Instead, we just get these snapshots of the world around us and we process it in a a way that's efficient. But that can, of course, lead to maladaptive consequences like we saw in Amanda's case. We talked about some of the cognitive
0: biases that affected my wrongful conviction way back in Episode 4 of Labyrinths, featuring Malcolm Gladwell. It's a subject that touches on pretty much everything we do. As John Ronson said, once I learned about confirmation bias, I started seeing it everywhere. Seeing as how we had an actual cognitive scientist on the line, we thought we'd pick our brain about what happened in my case.
1: One of the things that first connected us with Maya was an essay Amanda wrote about the many cognitive biases that played a role in her wrongful conviction. You can find the link in the episode description if you'd like to read it. That subject also came up when Amanda went on Maya's podcast, A Slight Change of Plans.
0: When I was sitting in a prison cell for a crime I didn't commit, there was one question that haunted me. I thought about it every day, and I still do, why? It didn't seem right to me that the police, my prosecutor, the Italian jury, the international press, or the thousands of people the world over who believed I was guilty were, well, evil. No way. So why? This question led me to study cognitive bias and how well-intentioned people can reach false and harmful conclusions.
2: I remember in our conversation, Amanda, oh, I just felt myself getting enraged at your prosecutor. You showed a lot more poise and grace towards him than even I was willing to show. But, you know, when I think about what drove him, there are lots of factors. But one factor, which you and I have talked about, is clearly he was falling prey to confirmation bias, right? Cherry-picking information that supports an existing stance that you have, and you tend to disregard information that challenges it. So he had decided early on the stakes were super high in the situation. He needed to find the suspect. There was an international media frenzy around this, right? So the faster that he could identify who the culprit was, the better it would be for his reputation and he could be proclaimed an Italian hero. Now, what I think is relevant in the particular case of your prosecutor is that This seems to be even more at play when the person of relevance is in a position of power. And that's because they do need to do things like save face and establish their status. We can fall prey to a bias called the escalation of commitment. This is related to confirmation bias, but it refers to our tendency to remain committed to our past behaviors, however irrational they may be, in order to justify previous decisions or beliefs that we have, right? at a certain point, it wasn't appropriate for him anymore to jettison his beliefs.
1: Sounds like the sunk cost fallacy. I was going to suggest that perhaps there's a sort of layered on additional bias here in which people are not great at assessing their own reputational damage costs for certain actions. People usually assume that admitting fault and saying they were wrong, I screwed up big time, is going to damage their reputation. But I think a lot of the time, that personally makes me think highly of somebody.
2: Yeah, there's research showing that. We can understate how valuable it is to concede when we're wrong and how that can be a big credibility boost. So this is related to what's called Bayes' theorem. It's about assessing the probability of an event based on prior knowledge of related conditions. So I think the question that people were asking themselves about your case, Amanda, was given that Amanda is a murderer, What's the likelihood she would have exhibited these behaviors, like kissing her boyfriend and doing cartwheels and whatnot? It makes so much sense. But actually, the relevant question is actually the reverse question, which is, given that Amanda engaged in these activities, what are the chances she's actually the murderer? So... When you ask the question that way, you realize that, in fact, there are a ton of innocent people out there who, given the stress of a deeply traumatic event, would have acted in the particular way you acted or in a slew of other unusual idiosyncratic ways. And so Bayes' theorem basically says the probability of A given B is not the same as the probability of B given A. So it's important to make sure that you're assessing the right conditional probability.
1: But even that is mediated by selection bias, right? Are those behaviors actually representative of Amanda's set of behaviors? Absolutely. And it turns out, no, they're not. <laughs> yeah. There's memory distortion. There's media selection distortion. Nobody recorded and published endlessly the moments of her looking tired or exhausted or sad because those are not interesting, notable moments, right?
2: Yeah. And find me someone who acts in a way that's representative of themselves in a acutely traumatized state. Find me anyone who's just like, yep, that's exactly how I am. It's like, no, of course it leads to very bizarre distortions in our presentation because we are traumatized, right? And we are in shock.
1: I think of it like someone takes a photo of you when you're yawning and then they say, look at this person. They're always walking around with their mouth wide open. (laughs) And it's like, you just happened to look when I was yawning. Amanda does a yoga stretch after 50 hours in a police station where she's sitting in a chair being interrogated through the night. And someone reports that, oh, she was stretching in this weird way. And that gets turned into a cartwheel. And, you know, yeah, she stretched once. So what?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Humans need to stretch at times.
1: The thing that I find most frustrating is that Amanda's been trying to put her humanity out there Ever since she got home, in various ways, from writing the book to doing her show, The Scarlet Letter Reports, now to the podcast, to the many pieces of journalism that she's written. And one of the things that I've witnessed from the sidelines is that the people who are committed to a worldview in which Amanda is this monster are very hesitant to even look at something that attempts to humanize her. What do you do in a scenario like that where somebody's worldview seems right at the front, guarding them from even being exposed to information that might challenge it.
2: Yeah, so I think this is where the messenger comes in certainly. And what I would say about that is there's huge power in the convert. So identifying people who used to think a certain way about you, but have seen the light and have now changed their minds about you, those are your most effective advocates because they can go out into their respective communities and say, "Hey, I can relate to you because we used to think the same way. But let me show you the psychological journey that I went through to update my thinking. And the Department of Homeland Security is using this technique all the time. They combat terrorist recruitment by using former terrorists.
0: Right. In the wrongful conviction community um, or the innocence community, the most powerful allies that any of these professional scientists and criminal defense attorneys can have are former law enforcement
2: or former prosecutors. Right. So when you find that advocate, having them share the article with the person is going to make a big difference. But it's also about figuring out who's considered an authority figure to the person of interest. We know that we as humans assign greater accuracy to the opinions of an authority figure. We're far more influenced by them, for, for better or worse. And I think in the case of Amanda, the people who were assessing your case, it was a very bad thing that happened because certainly for me growing up, I had so much deference towards government institutions. So I'm like, oh, wow, the, the CDC said this or like, oh, the World Health Organization said this. And then at some point you realize, oh, these are just people. Mm -hmm. People comprise these institutions and they're all fallible and they all fall prey to their own sets of cognitive biases. And so people were probably being deferential to the judge and the prosecutor and all these other high ranking officials in the court systems, not realizing that they're also just humans like the rest of us who are flawed in their own ways. But Chris, the upside of the authority figure is that if you can figure out who does carry authority within a social group, people will be most impressionable when the information is coming from those sources. There's going to be a constituency whose minds you will never change. One of the profound things that Amanda shared with me on a slight change of plans is when she said, I realized that in order for me to have a healthy, satisfying, fulfilling life is actually not necessary that I convince every single person out there that I'm innocent. It made a huge impression on me because essentially what you need to ask yourself is, what are the necessary conditions for my own happiness? And if I can eliminate some of those conditions, like the impossible task of convincing every single person out there to believe that I'm telling the truth, then all of a sudden the burden is eased slightly and you can focus your efforts instead on helping other people who have been wrongfully convicted or on just spending time with your daughter (laughs) or mushroom hunting, which I know is a passion of Amanda's.
1: Yeah, are there any other big cognitive biases that jump out at you as having played important roles in that miscarriage of justice?
2: Maybe the final one that I would want to share is around the impact of the labels that we assign to others and that we assign to ourselves. This comes from a space in cognitive science called social identity priming. It basically says that we will act in ways that align with the identities that we hold. And similar to most behavioral principles, this can have positive impacts. It can have negative impacts. So positive impacts, we find that when we remind people that they voted in previous elections, that they're voters, that that's their identity, more likely to show up to vote the next year. When you remind donors of the Red Cross that they have a history of being donors, that they are charitable individuals, they're much more likely to not only donate in following fundraising drives, but are actually more likely to donate more money. They actually become more charitable.
1: It's not what you've done, but who you are.
2: Who you are, exactly. Uh, Now, the downside is that when you assign people labels that are not consonant with the people that they aspire to be, those labels can really hold them back. And I also saw this to be the case when I was working in government. We were helping design reentry guides for people who had been formerly incarcerated. Amanda, as you might be acutely aware of, the transition from prison life to civilian life can be a very jarring one associated with all kinds of psychological obstacles and also just practical ones like, I need to get a driver's license. I need to get a social security card. I need to make sure I have health care, right? And so we were designing these guides and noticing that there was harmful language that was being used in the guides, referring to people as ex-prisoners, ex-convicts, like that is not productive. That's not going to help them assimilate back into their communities. So we changed the language to forward-looking identity labels like community members, job seekers, returning citizens. That is the kind of forward-looking language that will help people stay aligned with their own goals for themselves, right? so that they're acting in ways that are consonant with those identities. And Amanda, you said at one point, you had just been defined a prisoner. And you said you engaged in a very quick psychological shift. I remember that. You said it was a very fast thing that happened. And you're like, I guess these are my people. I guess this is my community. Now I need to find how to contribute. And so we could see how quickly that label affected your own self-perception, your own actions, right? And That's not to say in that moment it was good or bad. I mean, it was maybe very protective for you to have goals in the prison environment to help others, to feel that you were using your skills. But it at least shows how much these social identities can penetrate.
1: And it wasn't just Amanda facing the new identity as convict, but those who put her there who were attempting to preserve their prior identities as purveyors of justice and social order. So how do you reach someone when their very identity is wrapped up in disbelieving you or viewing you as a villain?
2: One reason why folks can often find themselves at an impasse where both sides are throwing information at the other, it seems like no progress is being made, is that we can often unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, question the other person's humanity in the process of having this kind of discourse. And as satisfying as that feels on an emotional level, because you just want to tell them, how could you possibly think this about me? Like, I, Amanda, am innocent. You you feel exasperated. Uh, It can backfire. Right. I interviewed Megan Phelps Roper. She was part of the Westboro Baptist Church, which is often considered, you know, one of America's greatest hate groups. And she was one of their most ardent vocal advocates and supporters. And People started engaging with her on Twitter in a very non-confrontational way. They tried not to question her fundamental humanity. They tried to ground arguments in ways that affirmed her moral values rather than threaten them. This is the notion of moral reframing. So rather than saying, Megan, what you think is absolutely completely crazy, you say, hey, I'm going to take some of your values as fixed, and I'm going to try to reframe my arguments in ways that align with those values, but still show you the light. And then similarly, I would say it's almost just as important in a case like Amanda's to remind people of Amanda's humanity. Because as you've mentioned, you have this doppelganger (laughs) walking around who's not even you, this person that people are spewing hate and vitriol towards who doesn't even exist and reminding people, you also come from a loving family. Like you have a lot of people in your life who care for you. You share a lot of the same values with some of your greatest skeptics and detractors, right? You're a mother now, right? You're a loving wife. And so sometimes, again, our cognitive bias is to just create the shell of a human being, assume that they have some sort of essential qualities that are immutable, and we just fail to update on the shared humanity piece of things.
0: I know what it feels like to have others completely fail to see my humanity. And that's motivated me to try as hard as I can to see the humanity in others even when we deeply disagree on something, and even when they've dehumanized me. But practically, how
2: can you convey all that? There are some techniques coming out of the motivational interviewing space that can actually help reaffirm people's sense of humanity while you're having this kind of discourse. One is you try and increase your question-to-statement ratio. So rather than talking at the person a lot, you show genuine curiosity for the person's views and why it is that they might have arrived at those views. So instead of saying, like, Amanda, you think this, Amanda, you think that, I'm saying, Amanda, why is it that you think this way? Did your mom teach this to you when you were growing up? You make sure that it's coming from a place of curiosity. Another thing that you can do is to restate in your own words what the other person has just said to you to show that you're hearing them. So that can often remind them that you're an observant listener because you do value what they're sharing with you. One question that can really make a big difference in in terms of the humanity piece is saying, hey, what in theory could change your mind? What evidence could convince you to think differently? And then you're helping to recruit their own sense of agency. A lot of people will actually say, oh, I think if, if this or that, right? And that at least allows for a space in which it feels like there's more of an exchange of ideas.
1: Yeah, I like that recipe a lot. It reminds me of the, did Amanda share with you the tattoo that we have about our own recipe for productive conversations?
2: I didn't know that you have tattoos. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, we both have this tattoo on our forearm. Yeah. It's a set of symbols. The first one is a Venn diagram, which represents finding common ground as the first step in any sort of conversation.
2: I love that. To
1: express your shared values, all that. The second symbol is a, a helmet for steel man, because we always want to make sure that we are presenting back the other person's position to them in such a way that they would say, wow, thank you for phrasing that so eloquently. That's exactly what I believe. A heart for having compassion for whatever their view is and how they arrived at it. And then a delta symbol for being willing to change ourselves. Because if you walk into some conversation unwilling to alter your own opinion, well, the other person's gonna meet you with something similar, right? So as much as we're committed to that, I still worry that I'm maybe not as optimistic about it as you sound right now.
2: I'm not that optimistic about it. Don't worry. It's a very hard thing to do. Well, first of all, you have absolutely warmed a cognitive scientist's heart with your tattoos. So thank you for making my day. I will also say that my husband, Jimmy, and I have tried to elevate admitting that you're wrong and and changing your mind to like this privileged status in the house. So every time one of us admits we're wrong, they get a huge pat on the back and they're showered with praise. So we really try to incentivize changing your mind as a core trait that we admire and respect in the other person. I, I would say that changing minds is one of the most intractable problems that exists within the field of cognitive science, behavioral science, like by a mile. The reason that I'm optimistic is only because at least we're starting to scratch the surface. At least we're starting to understand some of the underlying causes that there are certain techniques that are evidence-based that people are putting into practice and that seem to be working. They are not foolproof. They will not work in lots of situations, but it's giving us some food for thought in the way of how we approach the proverbial Thanksgiving dinner
1: Even if changing others' minds, separating their beliefs from their personal and tribal identities, is an exceedingly difficult problem, learning to spot the cognitive biases that shape our beliefs also changes us. It not only makes us better thinkers, but it can make us kinder.
2: Studying the human mind, in my experience, has been the greatest empathy builder. It gives me an appreciation for why it is that people seem unresponsive to facts and empirical evidence. It makes me appreciate why it is that people might have views that I very strongly disagree with and find harmful because understanding why it is that they arrived at these views can at least make you believe that there's a potential way to unwind those factors and dampen some of the forces that have led them to believe these things. Man, can you
0: imagine if everyone studied cognitive bias in school?
1: I might be suffering from the optimism bias, but that sounds like a great idea.
0: If you want to hear more from Maya Shunker, check out her podcast, A Slight Change of Plans.
1: Next time, Amanda meets one of her literal doppelgangers.
0: What could that mean?
1: Stay tuned to find out.
0: In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox.
1: At Man Under Bridge.
0: And why not give in to the sunk cost fallacy? You've devoted so much time listening to Labyrinths, that's got to be worth five stars.
1: This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with additional editing by Eric Carbonara and theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Baby makes everything harder. <laughs>
2: I mean, totally. I was like, I can't believe they even have podcast interviews scheduled with a child at home. (laughs) So consider
0: me impressed long term. Yeah, I might have to step out if she makes too much noise.
1: Well, I'll probably I'll take her if she gets upset. Yeah. No.
2: Well, I hope I'm not too distracted because your little one is extremely cute. (laughs) (laughs) And they're not always cute. Like there are some very not cute babies. Yeah. And so, yeah. Eureka's like 99th percentile, I would say. Oh, well, thank you.
1: Hold <laughs> oh, it right there. Let me hear your ads.
0: These aren't the ads you're looking for.
1: These aren't the ads we're looking for.
0: This podcast is listener-supported.
1: This podcast is listener-supported.
0: Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.
1: Come on, boys. Dot com, Flash Knox Robinson. <laughs>